Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are, too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. Have you ever wondered what the difference is between the Jewish Bible and the Christian Bible? Well, in this podcast, we'll review some similarities and differences between the Christian Bible that we call the Old Testament and what Jews call their Jewish Bible or the Tanakh, T-A-N-A-K. First, let's quickly review the Christian Bible. Our Bible is divided into two parts called Testaments. We have the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is about creation and God's early relationship with man, and later his relationship with a particular group of people called the Hebrews or the Jews. Our New Testament is about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and the start of the early church that followed his teachings. The word testament It means a few different things. In Greek, it means covenant. In Hebrew, it means agreement, covenant, or contract. For example, we say God made a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai when he called the Hebrews his people and gave them his laws. So the Old Testament covers the writings associated with the agreement that God made with Israel during the time of Moses. About a thousand years after Moses, a prophet named Jeremiah announced that God was going to enter into a new covenant with his people. That new covenant or agreement is what we as Christians call the New Testament. This testament concerns the agreement that God made with everyone, all humankind, not just the Jews through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, as Christians, we believe that this new covenant has a perfect priest, unlike all the human priests, the kings and the judges of the Old Testament. This perfect priest is Jesus, and he gave us a perfect sacrifice of his body and blood, therefore making the old covenant obsolete. The new covenant or promise is complete and eternal. Those who believe that Jesus is the Christ and that he died for the forgiveness of all our sins have the promise of forgiveness and eternal life. This new testament or covenant is for everyone. Here's a few more interesting ways to look at what a testament is. Well, It's a will, like a last will and testament. For example, a legally binding will that someone promises to their heir upon their death. Wow, I mean, that's really what Jesus has given us, the promise through his body and blood that were his heirs. Another way to consider the word testament is blessing. The blessing a father offers his children. Again, this is a beautiful way to understand the gift of our Old and New Testament. And testament 
can be used as a kind of moral exhortation, like the last words of a famous person. In the Jewish tradition, this evolved around a parental blessing of like a patriarch to his offspring before he died. Again, what an amazing testament God has left for us. In the Christian Bible, the Old Testament has 39 books, which we can actually divide into four categories. The first five books, sometimes called the Book of Moses or the Pentateuch. And then we have the history, poetry and writings. We kind of combine those together. The major prophets and the minor prophets. Now, it might surprise you to know that the Jewish Bible, which, as I said, is sometimes called the Tanakh, T-A-N-A-K, but in Hebrew, there wouldn't be any vowels, so it's really just T-N-K. They contain the exact same books as our Protestant Old Testament. The books just appear in a different order. And some of the books have been combined. For example, 1st and 2nd Samuel. In the Hebrew Bible, it's just Samuel. So their total books are less because they've combined some books. So they have 24 as opposed to our 39. The first five books of the Hebrew Bible are in the exact same order that they are in the Christian Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, they refer to these five books as Torah, Pentateuch, the Law, or the Law of Moses. All these names refer to the same five books. Now, during the time of Jesus, these five books were all on one scroll. Now, the Jewish Bible, or the Hebrew Bible, or the Tanakh, again, are all the same thing, just different names. Now, if we look at the word Tanakh, T is for Torah, the first five books. N is for Nevi'im, which is the next section of books. And this is where they have what they refer to as the former prophets, and the latter prophets, or, you know, just the book of prophets. And then the K is for the last section. That's the Ketuvim. And this is where they have a, really an assortment of writings. This is the poetry books like Psalms, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, and also history books like Chronicles. So in the Jewish faith, during the time of Jesus, they had three scrolls, one for the Torah, one for the Nevi'im, and one for the Ketuvim. So the Jewish Bible's writings are in a different order, but their content is the exact same as our Old Testament. Like I said, one of the things they've done is they've combined books. Well, actually, we were the ones who divided the books. They were originally always one. For example, 1st and 2nd Samuel was just Samuel. 1st and 2nd Kings was just Kings. 1st and 2nd Chronicles, just Chronicles. And then Ezra and Nehemiah 
they've combined into one book. As I said, the Jewish Bible starts with Genesis, just like our Christian Bible. But the way the Bibles end are different. The Hebrew Bible ends with Chronicles, because remember I told you that the Ketuvim, the Ketuvim ends with poetry and then with history. Our Old Testament ends with the prophets, and it actually ends with the prophet Malachi. So let's look at this for a minute. As I said, our Bible ends with Malachi. And in fact, this last paragraph of Malachi, see, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Hmm. So our Old Testament Bible ends with Malachi pointing to that final day of judgment. And he's basically saying to those who follow God, the day of judgment will be a great day, a day of joy, because it's going to usher in eternal life in God's presence. The Old Testament ends with a reminder that before this final day, God's going to send someone like Elijah, who we believe in our New Testament is John the Baptist, and he prepares the way for Jesus. That's how our New Testament starts. It starts with Matthew, and right after the Gospel writer Matthew reviews the lineage that got us to Jesus and records his birth, then right away in chapter 3, we have John the Baptist saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. So that's how our Old Testament ends. Now, the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, ends with Chronicles. And Chronicles is interesting. This book looks forward to the future Messiah and the future temple. It summarizes all of Jewish scripture. And it was actually written during the time that they were in Babylonian captivity. And it kind of makes sense for them to end their Tanakh this way. Because, remember, our Bible also has Chronicles in it. It's just in a different place. The Chronicles book, it, it's interesting. It kind of reshapes the past about King David. Because if you've ever read it, you know that it leaves out some of the bad parts of David's life and really focuses on the fact that a future king is going to come from the line of David. It's a very hopeful book. It outlines their hope for the future. In fact, Chronicles, as the authors of the Bible Project put it, looks back to look ahead. The last line of the Hebrew Bible, it's actually incomplete. It's like an incomplete sentence in most translations, which is a poignant way to end your Bible. It demonstrates this story is not over and there's more to come. The author of Chronicles is 
focused on the future, that hope of return from exile. And it ends with a quote from the King Cyrus of Persia. And this is what he says. Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given to me, and he's charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? The Lord his God be with him, and let him go up. And let him go up. Huh. The Hebrew Bible ends with the nation of Israel basically decimated by the Babylonians and their temple is destroyed. But the book ends with the promise that God's going to be with them and all is not lost. They are looking to the future and better days with God leading them. And they're focused on rebuilding God's temple, which remember that's where he dwelled among them. Now, it's believed the Old Testament was probably completed around 400 B.C. So, these ancient scrolls that make up the Hebrew Bible and our Christian Bible are what Jesus and his Jewish followers used to read in synagogue. They would unroll one of the three scrolls, depending on whether they were reading from the Torah, the Nevim, or the Ketuvim. So it's interesting to now look at what Jesus said in Luke 24, verse 44, and why Jesus said it the way he said it. Listen carefully. Now he said to them, These are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Notice, Jesus refers to the law, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Jesus is referring to the Tanakh, the order of the scripture in the Hebrew Bible. Law, prophets, Psalms. And he's saying the entire Old Testament was about him, the things which are written about me. Don't you want to scream? How could they not see this? Why were they so blind? Well, don't be so harsh because we're pretty blind to this truth too. So let's review some of the terms of Jewish writings. T for Tanakh refers to the Torah. Remember, this is the scroll of the first five books of the Bible. The word Torah actually means to instruct. We think these first five books were probably written down around 1400 BC on a scroll of papyrus, probably written by a scribe. Now here's a quick review of those first five books of the Torah, which remember are the same first five books in our Bible. We have Genesis, the first book of the Torah, 50 chapters, just like we have, covers the period of time from creation of all things by God to the time of the ancient patriarch Joseph's 
death and burial. Now, this is the Joseph who was second command in Egypt. And he's the guy that ends up saving his family and a remnant of Israel. He saves them from famine. And next we have Exodus. This is the second book of the Torah. 40 chapters, just like we have. Covers the period of time from Jewish slavery in Egypt. Remember, after that patriarch Joseph dies, the Hebrews end up staying in Egypt for about 400 years in slavery. And Exodus covers the birth of Moses, the plagues of Egypt, the exodus of the Jewish people from Egypt, crossing of the Red Sea, and then it goes to the law of Moses um, coming from God on Mount Sinai. Next, Leviticus. This is the third book of the Torah, also the third book in our Bible. 27 chapters mostly regarding laws, regarding like sacrifices, offerings, festivals. It's a bit of a tough read. The next book is Numbers, fourth book of the Torah, fourth book of our Bible. 36 chapters, and it covers a span of about 40 years. This is during the time when the Israelites wandered around in the desert. Remember, the Hebrew people messed up, and they didn't trust God and his goodness and his provisions. So that generation did not get to see the promised land. Yeah, without GPS or OnStar or Apple Watches, they were stuck in the desert for 40 years. Numbers is called numbers because it provides a census of the people of Israel and then also some details about their journey toward the promised land. The last book of the Torah, the T and Tanakh, is Deuteronomy, also our fifth book. Um, this book includes 34 chapters and Deuteronomy is a Greek word which means second law. Oh, they got the first law. Those were the big 10. This is the second law. This is the book where Moses repeats the law for the new generation. Because remember, the first generation died in the wilderness and he has to get them ready to enter the promised land. So guess what? 613 laws. Yeah, that's a lot of laws. The laws were meant to separate God's chosen people from everyone else and to point them to God and his holiness. Uh, yeah, there was no way they were going to obey those laws, right? It's hard enough with 10, but the whole point was for them to lean on God. As discussed, another word we use to describe those first five books is Pentateuch. Now, Pentateuch comes from a combination of two Greek words, Penta, meaning five, because it's the first five books of the Bible, and then tukos, which is scroll. So there you go, the five scrolls that make up the first part of the Tanakh. That's scroll number one. N in the word Tanakh, we said is for the Nevi'im, and this is the next section of books that they refer to as the former prophets and the latter prophets, or let's just call it prophets. And then the K. The K is for the Ketuvim, the last part of their Bible, or the third scroll. This is the what they call the book of writings, and it's it's a, a mix of writings. It's, it's going to be your Psalms and your Ecclesiastes, and then, as we said, all the history books. 
Okay, so let's look at a few other terms that are used to describe Jewish scripture. What's the Talmud? T-A-L-M-U-D. Well, the word Talmud is a Hebrew word that means learning or instruction. It's not part of the Tanakh. It's not part of the Hebrew Bible. Remember, Hebrew Bible contains the exact same writings our Old Testament does. The Talmud, well, this contains discussions and commentary on Jewish history and Jewish law and its application to life and to customs and to culture. Now, the Talmud consists of two different parts, the Gemara and the Mishnah. And these are really scholarly discussions on Jewish law. They're debates by rabbis between the second and the fifth century about what was written in the Tanakh. And there's one thing that seems to be consistent among all of my Jewish friends, and that is they love to debate. So that's what the Talmud is. It's recorded debates among scholarly rabbis. So one of my favorite sources for information is gotquestions.org. So I'm going to quote what they say about something called the oral Torah in Judaism. In addition to the inspired written Hebrew scripture, which Christians call the Old Testament, Judaism has an oral Torah, which is a tradition explaining what these scriptures mean and how to interpret them and apply the laws. Orthodox Jews believe God taught this oral Torah to Moses and to others down to the present day. This tradition was maintained only in oral form until about the second century AD. And that's when the oral law was compiled and written down in something called the Mishnah. Over the next few centuries, additional commentaries elaborating on the Mishnah were written down both in Jerusalem and in Babylon. These additional commentaries are known as the Gemara. The Gemara and the Mishnah together create the Talmud. And this was compiled between the 2nd century and 5th century AD. Now, sort of as a side note, the Talmud is actually what kids in yeshiva school use to study the Torah. So it's their commentary. I want to end this podcast with an overview of some other important scrolls. And these are the Dead Sea Scrolls. When I was in Israel, I went to the Israel Museum in Jerusalem, and my husband and I got to see a part of the Dead Sea Scroll that had been a part of the Book of Isaiah. Unbelievable to be looking at something this old and sacred. In fact, they have recovered over a hundred thousand fragments of these ancient scrolls. But what are they and why is it such a big deal to Christians and Jews? It's actually a crazy story. In 1947 in Qumran, which is a village about 20 miles east of Jerusalem and on the northwest 
shore of the Dead Sea. There's a young Bedouin shepherd. Now, side note, you can still see Bedouin shepherds shepherding their sheep. Well, anyway, in 1947, there was a Bedouin shepherd and he's uh, actually shepherding a goat. And this goat went astray. So the story is that he's trying to find his goat and he tosses a rock into one of the caves along the sea cliffs. Well, he heard a weird sound because the rock hit clay pots. And when he examined these pots, sort of in a weird and unexpected place, it was discovered that these ceramic pots contained leather and papyrus scrolls that were nearly 20 centuries old, 2,000 years old. Well, so that was just the beginning. So years and years and years, um, people kept coming back. 10 years, many searches later, 11 caves total were found around the Dead Sea that contained these hundreds of thousands of scroll fragments dating from the 3rd century BC all the way to the most recent ones were about 68 AD and represented an estimated 800 separate works. So this Dead Sea Scroll collection is amazing. The documents that they found on the papyrus and the leather are written in Hebrew some are written in Aramaic, which is the language that Jesus spoke, and also Greek. They cover a bunch of subjects and different literary styles. They include manuscripts from every book of the Hebrew Bible, which is the same as ours, except for the book of Esther. They have not been able to find Esther. She's out there somewhere. And here's what's so cool. These scrolls were created nearly a thousand years earlier than any other previously known Bible manuscript. The scrolls also contain the earliest existing biblical commentary. They found a biblical commentary on the book of Habakkuk and many other writings. Among them, religious works pertaining to like Jewish sects that were at the time. And the scrolls were in amazingly good condition. As I said, I got to see a part of it and it was incredibly well preserved. And scientists believe the reason is because they remained hidden in a very arid climate for 2000 years. And so they were protected from rain and animals and harsh weather. Nobody remembered that they were there. But I have to say, as a student of the Bible, one of the most incredible things I think about this discovery is that it matched other copies of the Old Testament. There were minimal differences. To me, this is just more evidence of the way that God has preserved his word down through the centuries, protecting it from extinction and also guarding it from significant error. And this is sort of a postscript note. Many people have said that the Bible is a how-to book, a book on how to live, if you will. God's little instruction book. Hmm. I actually ask you to reflect on this for a moment. 
If it really was an instruction book, don't you think God would have given us better people to follow? I mean, really. Every single one of the ancient patriarchs screwed up in some way. Cain, Abraham, Jacob, Moses, David, the whole lot of them. Liars, cheaters, adulterers. Some were even murderers. I think perhaps a better way to look at the Bible is a love story. It is God's testament, his will, his promise, his blessing, his covenant, his promise to us that he wants to have an everlasting relationship with us. Yeah, the liars, the cheaters, the adulterers, the murderers. The Bible is a story of how, while we were still sinners, God chose us and gave us the promise of eternal life with him through the body and blood of his son. John in 3.16 reminds us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that he who believes in him will not die but have eternal life. That's the beauty of the Bible. It's a promise and God does not lie. Have a blessed day.